You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. A conversation about how women are represented in conflict. And this is the theme of this year's Wexford Opera Festival. Uh, and we wanted to go behind the scenes of this topic to think about it a little bit more. Uh, in my daytime job as a lecturer in the School of English here in Trinity, I've taught the subject of women and representations in wartime writing for many years, but I'm, I'm still not sure I completely uh, understand this very complex subject. If you uh, go to London and go to Whitehall, you, many of you will, I think, have seen the monument to the women workers of the Second World War. It's a huge bronze box in the middle of Whitehall. Um, and it's decorated with the empty uniforms that are hung up of the auxiliary workers and the munitions workers, and indeed some of the competent women who worked in the Second World War. But uh, for me, it reflects that paradox uh, of this topic that women in wartime are on one hand strangely disembodied. We might just see the empty uniforms. But on the other hand, they're sometimes represented in exaggerated and iconic bodily forms. If we think of Cleopatra or Boudicca or Joan of Arc. Or if we think of that famous uh, uh, huge figure of the nurse in the famous First World War poster, the Red Cross recruiting poster. Uh, or again, if we think in the Second World War of uh, the other recruitment poster for the munitions factories, Rosie the Riveter flexing her biceps. Once we move away from that kind of imagery, what do we have left? And what exists in artistic representations that can get us closer to this topic and get us closer to understanding what it is like for women uh, in all parts of a conflict, uh, from all aspects? This evening, we're very fortunate to have two guest speakers who are very well qualified to discuss this in relation to their own work. Uh, on my left, Rosetta Cucci. Rosetta is very well Working on my Italian. <laughs> Rosetta, as many of you will know, is the celebrated artistic director at the Wexford Festival Opera. She has directed opera all over the world, uh, including previously in Wexford. Uh, and she's returning this year to stage three operas, a set of three operas, that all touch on this theme of women and war. So we're going to be in conversation with Rosetta this evening and looking at some of the images she's brought for us to, uh, to look at this theme. We'll also be talking to Lara Marlowe, and Lara, again, will be known to many of you, a writer, a journalist, a very distinguished foreign correspondent with the Irish Times, uh, who has sent award-winning reports back from uh, international conflict zones for, I think, almost two decades now, Lara, uh, and most recently, well, <laughs> I don't know how you look so good. Most uh, recently, as many of you will know, if you've been reading them, um, Lara has been reporting from Ukraine, where she has uh, been behind the lines, but looking really at, at images of women who are both combatants in the Ukraine forces and also civilian women. 
and again, Laura has brought some images with her that we're going to be looking at um, when we come to that conversation. Just before we start, I, I will say that given the nature of this subject, we'll obviously be discussing some sensitive topics, including the topic of rape as a weapon of war. And I know this audience will all appreciate that we'll be addressing that topic uh, with, with sensitivity and appropriately. Um, we're going to talk for uh, um, about 45 minutes, uh, and then we'll be opening the floor to comments from you, the audience, and for a bit of Q&A. Um, and uh, after that, thanks to Wexford Festival Opera, uh, you're all invited, if you can stay, for a glass of wine, which will be over in the Trinity Longwood Pub, uh, immediately after the conversation. We can lead people as necessary. So let's get started, and let me turn first to Rosetta. Uh, maybe you'd begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work, how you came to this field. Well, <clears throat> I started to play, good evening to everybody. <laughs> uh, I started to play piano when I was four, so a long time ago. And then my life has been full of sliding doors. When I was 19, I started to play an orchestra, symphonic orchestra, which was like an party symphonic. It was a Delay symphonic. And I thought, okay, this will be my life. Then the orchestra closed. So I said, okay, I need to do something else. And by chance, I met the opera. I met it in Reggio a small town in Italy. And there was an artistic director called Luigi Ferrari. And he passed beside me, listening me play, and he said, I have a festival in, in Ireland. Can you come? <laughs> this was 1995. He invited me in Wexford and in Pesaro. And we, this was the beginning of my career in opera. So in Wexford, I started to be a stage director. Of course, in the university, I already studied university theater, but I started here. And then from here on, I travel over the world to this job in opera. Until I arrive uh, to be um, the artistic director of the festival in 2020. And at that point, I said, I want to give a team every year. Wexford is about rare operas. So I added a challenge of this fact of having rare opera. Adding a theme that has to contain all the three opera. And from the beginning, I started to think about having women of war. Why? I'm a woman, first of all. And uh, I think it's a duty and a right for a festival to be enough bold and enough brave to talk about subjects that are actual subjects, that uh, is touching one part of our soul that is still there today. This was the main reason why I picked the Women of War. But Women of War, and Lara will be much better than me to speak about war, but what I intended about Women of War was not only the war that a woman fight with guns, shooting people, no. 
For me, the world that we, I want to analyze is the world that a woman has to fight daily against the prejudice, against violence, against uh, the idea that the rights are not equal, equal against diversity, to feel diverse. So this was the idea behind the women war. And also, Wexford is the right place to experiment things. Because we are a festival. And we needed to open the door, not only. I mean, theater, of course, is entertainment. Everybody goes to the theater to enjoy. And there will be a lot of enjoyment. But we need, theater needs also to think about. To start a conversation like this one. To start to think about the subject that maybe you can listen or watch in television, but you never thought it could be uh, delivered from a theater. So these are the reasons behind of course, in the history of opera, there are a lot of women warriors. If I can switch up the light, I'll show you. The first one, very quickly, the first one is not this. The first one maybe was in 1624, is Il Combattimento di Tancredi e Florinda. That was probably in the opera the first time that a woman disguised as a man and decided to fight with a man. And she died, of course. After that, it was, for instance, the history of Armide and Renard. Same thing, same from Torquato Tasso, Jerusalem Liberata. Again, she fought like a man and she died. And then we have Medea by Cherubini, 1797, a wonderful opera that we did in 2017 with an amazing singer that now is a star, which is Lisa Davidson. Well, Medea is a negative or is a victim? We don't really know how to judge this, but this image is the image of the movie by Pierpaolo Pasolini. He asked Maria Callas to be the protagonist of that movie in 1969. And that was probably the most, the biggest challenge that Maria, sorry, that Maria Callas had in her life. She was actually in the going down of her career. But Pasolini asked something to her, very difficult. She asked to drop down every emotion, every feeling, and feel in this movie only the diversity to be in a country that didn't welcome her. So the action that came after that was only from the top of the subject, the diversity of her. You know, we can represent Medea like this, or we can represent Medea like this. This makes a lot of difference. So, in the opera, 
There is also this subject that we need to keep out, that is very important. How to realize an opera? How to realize today an opera? Of course, everybody is very attached to the idea of the tradition, which is fine. We love the tradition. But why not think about that some of those stories can be very close to us? And so it's worth, they are worth to be updated. You know what I mean? And this is what I think that uh, the opera is for today. Other women warriors? Yes, we have a lot. We have this one. This one is Fidelio. This one is a wonderful Fidelio from the Covent Garden. That girl is Lisa Davidson. Well, you can see how you can do it. She is disguised, she is Leonora in the story, and she is disguised like a man that is called herself Fidelio. But we can do this like this in a very traditional way, or we can do that like that, and we don't need to disguise. The male soul is inside the room as well. So we have a different layer in the opera, how the opera has been written, how the opera will be realized, how the woman and the protagonist in the opera is a fighter herself and a warrior in the opera. And then there is another little thing that I want to add. Most of those operas have been written by wonderful composer, but wonderful men composer. So the point of view it's really something that comes from a man. All of these hero or heroines, doesn't matter. They will die at the end. But Fidelio. So it was really interesting to see uh, there were a lot of women composers in the past. A lot. Michael Deborah can make a, a long list. But I can tell you about, about uh, for instance, Clara Schumann, which was the wife of, uh, of Robert Schumann. Uh, Lydia Boulanger, uh, Fanny Mendelssohn, very well hidden behind a kind of curtain, because it wasn't time. Today, finally, we have the point of view of women as well, that we have wonderful women composers. I did a little research. There is a composer, a Finnish one. It's called Carlo Sarayano. She's very famous. Her opera, she passed away recently, but she did a wonderful job in her life. Her opera are performed in the Met, in the Covent Garden, to examples, everywhere. She wrote an opera about, called Emily. Emily du Chatelet. It's based on the life of Emily Chupichotte, which was a, a mathematician, she was a, a philosopher, and she lived around 1730, something like this. If you see the opera, which is a, a, a very nice opera, she um, studied, she goes through her life, not only her private life or her love life, she goes through the, the life of her in front of the business, for her passion of the math, of the philosophy. And remind me, I just did a, recently a stage production of Adriana Recouvreur. Adriana Recouvreur is by Francesco Cinea. 
She really did it in 1730, same time. But is uh, the story of Aliviana and Cuvera in the opera is just about her love. It's not only that. We are not only that. We are also something else. There are adept. This is why. These are all the reasons why I picked this uh, theme. And when I picked this theme, and I, I said this was 2020, then I said I needed to find a three opera that matches this theme. With three women protagonists that are really warriors in different ways. And this is the reason, because I found those three operas. The first one is a Bidonizetti. So it is it has been written. It is too long to tell me. It has been written in 1822, so long time ago. Apparently, at the first sight, is the usual story of a tyrannic king that killed the father and wanted to marry the daughter. Okay. You can find in a thousand of stories. But there is another liar in the story that is fantastic. Zoraida really is a political person that are able to match in the middle of this big war to find out a way, a diplomatic way to, you know, to save somehow the situation. And it's very important what the director has thought about this opera. He decided to update this opera the time of this opera is the 15th century in Spain, in Granada. He decided to, let's say, update this opera in a much more recent time, which was the war in the Balkan Sarajevo in Bosnia. And the, the set is really clever. In Sarajevo, there was a library, very ancient library, that was bombed and vandalized just because the idea of vandalizing the art is something that destroys the culture of the country. Am I wrong? Cultural cleansing, they call it. Exactly. exactly. And they placed this opera in this destroyed library that is so deep uh, for me uh, important and uh, I, I don't have a word in, in English. I would love to say Italian. It's so uh, profound. Okay? And uh, so for me, is the best way. When he presented to me the, the, the project, I, I, I said, yes, this is the right project for Zoraida. The music is wonderful. It's a Donizetti style, it's perfect. But we need to match a thing, we need to match the ancient music with a new idea of theater. And then we have Le Bruges, another opera that I found by chance in the Bibliothèque Nationale de Paris. Nobody probably knows Camille Erlanger, but Camille Erlanger was a wonderful composer in uh, between the 19th and 20th century. 
painted, he wrote nine operas, which this one is one of the best. It was written in 1911. And uh, the music, do you know that by Massenet? is famous. It's like Massenet, with uh, some sound from the 20th century, but still Massenet. And the story is fantastic. Olga is a woman. They are trying to save his name from himself. And this is not, this is not another world. How many women are trying to save their men from themselves, from their violence? In this case, it is a nihilist. So of course, a nihilist wanted to destroy the governor, the noble people himself. And in all the opera, she's trying to avoid this. She's trying to save him. In this wonderful music that uh, I wish you would listen to, really. This has never been done in modern time. And this is why because Wexford is so important. Because we discovered it. Like little piece of gold. And then there is the last one, La Ciociara. La Ciociara is an opera, is a modern opera. has been commissioned in 2015 from San Francisco Opera. But it comes from a, a very, very nice book of Alberto Moravia in the 1950s, and after that, a wonderful movie called Two Women in English and La Ciociara in Italia, done by Vittorio De Sica, which was a very famous director, and um, Sofia Loren, who won the Oscar for this movie, believe it or not. And this is the story of two women, mother and daughter, they try to survive the aftermath of the war, of the Second World War. So we are having three wars in different times with women that are going to be the captain of this story. She, uh, I mean, uh, Cesira, which is the name of the, of the character, main character, is wonderful. I don't know if it works, but I did a trick. I put together a movie, a, a little piece of the movie, with the music of Marco Tutino, and it matched perfectly. I tried to see if it works. Of course, I'm ready. The bar is enormous, and then the movie. Can you try? Mm -hmm.
and thank you for showing us. And I think a lot of people may have seen La Chiachara, the film version, and just how devastating it is to watch. So just briefly, tremendous that you put these three operas together. What do you want your audience to feel? What do you want your audience to take away from, from watching, after all, particularly the third one, quite difficult subjects on stage? Yes, it's a, it's a difficult subject, but in normal opera, even in the second, that is the biggest tragedy because she died, and there is a, a thought to look forward. And look forward for me is what I want as also to have a public and exit without a thought, just a thought. That uh, life is difficult, we all know this, uh, but we, we have to look forward to um, optimize a thing, to, to make it better, and to start a discussion to make something better. For me, this is the only way to cross the problem, to go over the problem. So this is what I want. We'll the start of discussion. We, we, we will discuss this. We want to come back to you, but let me turn to Lara, because Lara, you, you've seen the images that Rosetta has brought for us. I know you're going to show us some images as well. When you see material like this on stage, is there any possible way this connects to the reality that you see on the ground? Um, actually, just watching the video from La Chochara, there were two bits that really spoke to me. One is when they're under bombardment and the artillery shell explodes and they hit the ground. I've been through that quite a few times and, and that's very realistic. And, and the other bit was when the two women are sitting by the side of the road and the military convoy is, is going by. I've seen that many, many times as well. Um, yes. Um, you know, I, I think representations in art, they're always a, a sort of concentration of reality. Uh, but it, it's, it's more true than the truth in, in a way. And I, I know, again, I, I want to get to your images, but Rosetta talked a bit about some of the challenges that, that she has in thinking about the artistic staging of these works. You face very different challenges. I know currently the Ukraine journalists are not being taken to the front line. But your reports from behind the front line, from the domestic world that's been so shattered by this conflict, have been brutal to read. Um, and not least your report on uh, very young victims of rape, and again, rape used as a weapon by the, the Russian forces. What, what are the challenges that you think you face in your role? Because it's a different kind of representation, a different kind of responsibility. Uh, in Ukraine, the challenges are different than in other wars. Um, earlier wars, one had to worry, I worried a lot about communications, satellite phones working or not working, would my computer hold up, um, would there be electricity. Uh, in Ukraine, so far, thanks to Elon Musk, um, there have been, telephone has never let me down in, in Ukraine. Uh, the food is still good, the hotels are still good after 18 months of war. Um, probably the, the, the two big challenges, I mean, the distances are enormous. I mean, the, the last train ride I took from Kharkiv to Lviv before leaving was uh, 14 hours on the train. Uh, 
um, and I, I took several overnight trains, only traveled by overnight trains. Um, I think the, the, I find it very inspiring, actually. I find it uplifting, if that makes sense. Obviously, there are sad times when you go to a funeral, when you meet someone who's been amputated, uh, when you especially when you people who lost their children in the war. Um, actually, one of the most sad things I covered was a, um, a holiday camp for Ukrainian orphans. And that is, that is really heartbreaking. There was one particular little girl called Katya, who was nine years old, who was very clingy and kind of followed me around. And in the end, asked me if I would give her something to remember or leave behind. That was, that was really heartbreaking. Um, but I find that the, the, the determination and the courage of the Ukrainians somehow surpasses that tragedy and that sadness. Um, and I think maybe Rosetta was talking about something similar in the operas, that, that there is a, a sense of resistance and, and struggle, which is in itself a, a positive thing. I know you, you brought some images for us, which I hope we can work in. Do you want to talk us through? Yes. Um, this is a young woman, she's 28 years old. She's called Lieutenant Yulia Mikitenko, and she's the commander of a drone unit on the front line in Bakhmut, uh, back between Bakhmut and Solodar uh, in Donbass. And you can see she's got a, a drone, a new drone there, which is hugging. Um, this is a drone war. It's extraordinary. Um, I heard someone say today, it's like the first world war, but with drones. Uh, and the drones are doing everything. And they're, they're spying over enemy lines and dropping explosives and helping them to rescue people uh, and so on. And Julia is one of the most impressive people I have ever interviewed in more than 40 years of journalism. I mean, she was young and innocent, but she's been through it. She's been seven years in the army already. Uh, she's a widow. Her, she, she married a soldier, and he was killed in, in Donbass in 2018. She actually heard the news of his death on the army radio. She was just a few kilometers away. And then in 2020, uh, her father, who's called Nikola, uh, who was an army surgeon, immolated himself on Maidan in central Kyiv in protest because he thought that Zelensky was going to give Donbass to the Russians. Because you, you might remember that uh, Zelensky was elected on the platform of making peace for the Russians. So she's been, the same woman has been through a lot and she's, she really loves her life in the army. She loves life as a soldier. And, and I, I asked her, for example, she's an attractive woman. I said, have you ever had unwanted sexual advances from, from men in your unit or, or whatever? And she said, she said, no, I have a gun. So her ambition, she said that when the war ends, as it would eventually, um, she wants to leave active, um, the active army and uh, devote herself to veterans affairs. And her ambition is to become the defense minister of Ukraine. Um, so people like her really give me hope for Ukraine. I certainly hope she survives. You see the next picture, this woman is also a soldier. Uh, she goes by the, the call sign Alaska. Uh, she didn't tell me her real name. 
She was very badly wounded in January of this year. Um, a drone, actually, a Russian drone with um, three kilos of explosives exploded in her, her base in Donbass and uh, went through a lot of shrapnel, went through her pelvis, and she couldn't walk for three months. Uh, now she can only walk with this crutch. And she was under Ukrainian law. She had to go back to the front very quickly. And she was, I interviewed her when she was on leave in Kyiv to ask a military commission if they would just give her more time to recover. And I, I asked her, would you join up again if, if, you, if you had known you were going to be wounded? And she said, yes, absolutely. And I said, why? And she said, I don't want to be Russian. Um, and so that's her pet dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> She needs in, in key. And all of this stuff here is captured Russian um, weapons and vehicles, rucksacks and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, that's Alaska. She actually made a joke, which I thought was quite funny. She, when she said she didn't want to be Russian, she said, just look at that awful camouflage. We call that frog, frog camouflage. She said, our pixelated camouflage is so much more chic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I, I sort of divided in my mind before this talk, divided women in war into categories. So the first category that you just saw were the, the fighting women, the defenders. Um, when I, when the first war that I really covered in depth was the Lebanese Civil War. And in November of 1999, sorry, 1989, uh, Benny Mohamed, who had just been elected president of Lebanon, was assassinated with a car bomb. And we, I went to northern Lebanon, where, his, where he was from, where his funeral took place. And there was, it was the first time I saw, the first of many, many times I saw this in Lebanon, a house with only women in it, all dressed in black, all seated in rows, with tables and little cups of coffee and, and um, biscuits and sweet cakes and things to eat. And they do this for, all day, every day for seven days. And I wrote in my story at the time, in Lebanon, the men die and the women do the mourning. Uh, and I've seen you know, in, in Ukraine now, it's most of the people getting killed are men. Um, and these two women are called uh, Aksana and Sofia, her daughter on the right. Um, and their husband and father, who's called Victor Dudar, was one of the first journalists killed in the war at the beginning of March 2022. I went to his funeral in Lviv, uh, and we were standing beside his grave, actually, when I talked to him and when I took this photograph. And uh, Sophia said to me it, that she had told him just when he left from the front, it is better to be the widow of a hero than the wife of a coward. And she said he was very pleased with me for saying that. Um, so these women were very, very dignified in their mourning, but it was. It was tragic. And actually, one point, all three of us were just crying, and the tears just, just coming down. Um, the next picture uh, is of refugees. This is my third category of women in war. Uh, Alina, the woman on the right, with her cat Judy, had just, she looks quite pleased, but actually, she's exhausted. She has just come uh, on a coach from Ukraine and stepped off the coach in just across the Polish border. And she's a tour operator in, in Kyiv. And like so many women in war, she had 
she had a normal life, she had a happy life just a few days before this photograph was taken and it had all shattered and her, her boyfriend couldn't come with her because of course men can't leave Ukraine. Uh, and I thought, well, the woman on the right is called Maria Yatsenko. She was in her, she was 37 years old and I met her in the railway tunnel in Lviv train station. I actually called her when I saw her in the Irish Times, the Madonna of the railway tunnel and she had such a beautiful Madonna-like face. And that is her youngest of five children. And this young woman, who again, a few days before, had been a judge for tennis matches. She'd been a semi-professional tennis player herself. And she was carrying, almost physically, but certainly metaphorically carrying, her own father, who was in his late 60s, her grandmother, had been deported by the Soviets during the Second World War to Siberia um, and come back. And the, the grandmother was very hunched over; she couldn't stand up straight. And five children, including this infant, and she'd come nearly a thousand kilometers from Dnipro. Um, very, very inspiring people. Um, the next category, uh, I when, and I feel trouble calling them categories. That sounds so impersonal. We call. Um, it's the weak and the vulnerable who, whether they be men or women, are always the people who suffer the most in the war. I, I interviewed this woman called Nadia. She's 79 years old on the 28th of August, so just um, about three, three, four weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, uh, in a little village 18 kilometers from Russia. And the Russians had occupied the village and were driven out a year ago. Uh, in the Kharkiv offensive. And her son, her husband had died just before the war. Her son, Dimitro, was beaten to death by the Russians. And he'd been evacuating all the old people from the villages. And her, she took me inside her house, and her, her roof was in bits because of the, all the bombardments. And the, the village had been fought over by the Ukrainians and the Russians back and forth. And, you know, I don't know whose shells destroyed her roof, but her roof was destroyed. And I mean, they, they're happy. Um, anecdote you know, to, to this, or, or footnote to this story, is that there was a group of three young volunteers from Kiev who were rebuilding roofs for people. And she was, she was sobbing while I was interviewing her, and these three young people said, we'll, we'll rebuild your roof. And she said, I must have a new roof for winter. And they said, don't worry, we'll, we'll build your roof for winter. Uh, and then, uh, I think I have one more picture here. Yes, and this is a much older photograph. This one, this is the only photograph not taken by me. It's a file folder photo from uh, Kosovo in uh, 1999. You might remember the NATO bombardment of Serbia uh, over Kosovo, which led to the independence of Kosovo eventually. But these people are ethnic Albanians, Kosovars, fleeing. They were being ethnically cleansed by the Serbs. Um, because the Serbs were determined to keep Kosovo for themselves. And I, this is so emblematic, so representative of scenes that I've seen over and over and over. I have a photograph very similar to this that I took in Georgia myself in 2008 when the Russians invaded Georgia. Uh, and I actually saw in April of 99 the twin horrors of the Serbs ethnically cleansing these Kosovar Albanians and NATO bombing them. These were the people we were meant to be protecting. Um, this, we were taken 
around the southern Kosovo in a, in a coach by the Serbian army, because I had come down from Belgrade. And you would see village squares with crowds of women and children huddling. The men were there because the men were fighting the Serbs, of course. And they were being, they were herded onto to buses by the Serbs and then dumped on the border with Albania. And then there was one image which which really stayed in my mind, which was um, the curtains, the buses that they put them on had curtains, and the curtain would part just a few inches, and you would see a woman's face, this tragic face, through this little parting in the curtains. Uh, and I saw the same thing in, um, in Ukraine in March uh, of, of last year. Of course, the, the Ukrainians were not being physically deported the way that the Kosovars were, by the Russians, but they were being driven out by the Russians by the bombardments. And the, the trains all have curtains on them because the blackout curtains, so they won't be bombed. And I, at, a, at a, a stop, I was going into Ukraine, they were coming out, and I remember the curtains parting and seeing the faces of women and children and hands on the glass, very similar to what I'd seen in, in Kosovo. Um, and the, the, the US, the nature of bombing of these refugee convoys was was really horrific. Um, the first one that I saw, they had killed. They killed 73 refugees. NATO later admitted to it. It was a blunder, and they did the same thing two weeks later and, and killed another 50 refugees. Now, the one, the sort of uh, category of women that I have, I don't have a photo to show you. You'll understand why is rape, uh, and that that scene with Sophia Loren is, is very reminiscent of so many stories that I've heard. Sadly, uh, I think rape has always happened in wars, and just to say that seems almost sounds like an excuse. Um, I, I know that uh, Pramila Patton, same, same family name, uh, who's in charge of, of fighting sexual violence against women at the United Nations, said, called this an insidious uh, myth that, that rape is an integral part of war. Um, it is insidious. I'm, I don't think it's a myth. I mean, if you remember when the Russians went into Berlin in April of 1945, this is according to Anthony Weaver, the British historian, uh, they raped 130,000 women in Berlin and probably 2 million in all of Germany. Um, there are 20 wars in the last part of the 20th century in which women were raped on, on a massive scale. Um, Rosetta was telling me the Moroccan soldiers, the Goubien, 60,000 60, Italian women. Um, it, the rape of Nanking, uh, you may, some of you may have read the book by Iris Chang, uh, who was a Chinese-American uh, author. Uh, the, the Japanese raped 80,000 women in Nanking, and they killed almost all of the women they raped. A lot of them they crucified. Um, the, I, I won't go into the details, but it is horrific. And uh, you could almost say that Iris Chang was the last victim of the rape of Nanking because she took her own life uh, in, in, in 2004 when she was, she was 36 years old. And, and I can understand why reading the book you think human beings are, are totally depraved, that this is beyond, beyond, beyond hope. Um, in Ukraine, uh, <coughs> one of the most disturbing interviews certainly that I've done in my three long trips to Ukraine was uh, a gynecologist, 
who I interviewed a year ago in EADT, who had cared for a month for a 12-year-old girl, uh, who we agreed to call Maria because the child didn't want anyone to know her name. She was ashamed of what had happened to her, and she didn't want anyone to know why she was taken to the hospital. She was in Bucha, where the Russians committed the, the worst atrocities of the war, and three Russian soldiers gang-raped her, and then uh, shot her mother and father and the family dog dead, killed all three of them. Uh, it was really chilling. And the, the gynecologist was weeping when she told me the story. And um, I, I studied, I did a lot of interviews. It's hard to know if the Russian, the, the rape of women in Ukraine is systematic, or if it's just a crime of opportunity. Um, are the Russians just doing it with him? The fact that Wagner, for example, had all these prisoners, and some of the prisoners were rapists, and, and uh, it may be that these former prisoners were just doing what they had always done, and, and raping women. I know that uh, Vladimir Putin decorated the soldiers who committed the atrocities at Bucha, and gave the whole brigade a, a, medal, you know, a medal of honor. Um, it's interesting to me that, oh, oh sorry, I could go on and on, I better, I better stop saying that, um, in uh, Bosnia, in 1993, I interviewed uh, a Bosnian Muslim woman who'd been in a Serb raid camp for, for a month. Uh, and that was, that was very similar to what the Japanese do with the so-called comfort women in, in, in China. Um, but it was only, uh, it was 1995 when the United Nations finally declared rape uh, a war crime. Which, which seems really stunning to me. Uh, and in 2008, the UN said that rape can be uh, a crime against humanity, a war crime, and an indicator of genocide. Uh, so the legal framework has, has, has come very, very late. Lara, thank you for, for talking to us about this. What I want to ask you is, how do you, how do you come to terms with your own role and your own responsibility? In, representing uh, women who very often won't have a voice, won't have representation, will suffer terribly, or perhaps have become different kinds of women. We saw earlier when Rosetta was talking about how you said it, it really matters, there is a difference in how we can represent the figure of Medea, quite in two very different photographs. You have a huge responsibility on your shoulders in terms of how your photographs and how your writing represents women in war zones. Can you tell us a little bit about, to be quite frank, can you tell us how you sleep at night? Can you tell us how you deal with, with, with the job that you do? Um, I, the people who suffer are the victims of the war, not me. Um, you, you use the phrase, you, they don't have a voice, so you give them a voice, and, and that's how I see my role is to tell a story. Um, George Bernard Shaw said that the, the, the only thing worse than hatred is indifference, and that uh, indifference is, is the essence of inhumanity. And I want people to care. I want my readers to care uh, about these women. Um, Iris Chang, who I mentioned, who, who, who committed suicide after writing this, this book, which is, which is really horrible at the same time, uh, said that she she wanted to force the world to remember 
And, and I think that the victims of war, be they, whether it's a widow or a refugee or a, a victim of rape, I think they want to be remembered. I think they want the world to know. And that's how I see the role of journalists in conflict. I'm thinking here of a, a, a comment from Margot Norris, who's a, a very well-known critic who writes on war literature. And she says that when, when anybody goes to a battle, they take with them in their head all the books, all the films, all the music, all the operas that they may have seen on this subject before. And she calls war a, a pretextualized entity. But I think really what that phrase means is it's very difficult to look at these scenes without having perhaps previous representations in your mind. And, and that idea of was it the Madonna at the tunnel uh, for describing that photograph. You know, do you ever find that you're bringing to what you see images or memories or, or shapes that have come from artistic representations mm. that, that, that are your baggage in a way? Well, yes and no. I mean, when, when you're being shelled, you're not thinking about movies and novels. Yeah. Right? But um, very often, I, I find that my the cultural background, if you like, is, is very enriching. For example, there's, there's a British poem, I can't remember who wrote it, about uh, today we have naming of parts. And it's about, it's about keeping a, a gun, right? And in Lviv, in, in the beginning of the war, a week or two after the war started, I went to a class that was open to the public uh, for weapons training. And people, young, young women, one of them was a nail artist, I remember, you know, were queuing for, for hours to take part in this, to learn how to fire Kalashnikov. And when the instructor started taking apart the Kalashnikov and showing them how to shoot the cartridge and everything, I just, that poem just popped into my mind. Um, then there's a Dr. Zhivago is, is my, my favorite movie. And um, I remember that Stromakov, you know, Bernard's husband, uh, disappears, he's offered a Bolshevik somewhere, and she runs into him out in the middle of nowhere in the Russian steppes, and he says to her, the private life is dead. And I've thought of that so many times in wars, where we meet people who are no longer themselves, who really yeah. lost their souls. And, and I was the strong cop, Dr. Zhivago, the private life is dead. Um, there's a, a Apollinaire, who's my favorite poet, uh, was fought in the First World War. In fact, was wounded in the head and was cut out, which is all the thing. You drill a hole in your head and beat your, your brain. You know. uh, but he wrote about shells bursting like the mimosa blossom. And, and sometimes there is an aesthetic sign to war, not very often, but you know, explosions, you know, you know anyway, I, I often think about Polinaire and his descriptions of the war. So yeah, I, it's an interesting this idea that you take this into battle. Um, I in, forgive me for plugging my book, I published a book a couple of years ago called Love and Time of War, and I wanted to have a poem at the front of each chapter. And I did, and for the chapters on the Iraq War, I wanted poems by Iraqi authors. And I managed to find two poems, which I thought, one of them uh, described a woman, she's, she's walking in Baghdad during the war, and she talks about walking without feet, when you think of all the amputees. Uh, and the other, the other poem was, these uh, are both Iraqi poets living in Exana, uh, talked about the bombs flying overhead and bombing, and they said, 
everything was fine, you know, and the bomb was exploding, and everything, don't worry, everything was fine, sort of thing, and that there is that sort of paradox, you know, that the rest of the world is sleeping, basically, you're getting bombed. And, and I know we, we talked about this problem of, of the ease with which these stories can become romanticized, sentimental, aestheticized, and, and Rosetta, you know, you've got that difficult balancing act that on one hand you want to bring out the trauma, but at the same time, it's beautiful music, it's exquisite staging, it's visually stunning. I mean, How do you work absolutely. that balance? I mean, it, it is the big problem of the aestheticization. We all struggle with that one. Yeah, it's difficult for me. Of, of the world in opera, uh, it was easier in the time of Verdi, in the time of this opera, because there were heroes. Heroes, heroines. Now, Lara was telling us stories that we don't know. The social way of representing world today is not anymore. Uh, worth to find a way of representing in the arts. You know, Picasso painted Guernica because Guernica was bombed and fired and he found the inspiration of these people and animals that were there. Donizetti, uh, Verdi, was in the Resorgimento, Italian Resorgimento, and he wrote Nabucco. So it was a way of uh, representing the freedom that Italy freed from Austria without saying this. It's not easy to represent the war, and uh, at the same time, to have this level of uh, wonderful music, uh, high quality of everything, it's very difficult. Today is a challenge even more. For new composer, it's really a challenge because they have to, to start from the point that the reality has to be shown. In the past, this reality was patinated, let's say patinated. We have a lot more to say on this, Laura. Yeah, I just want to say, for me as a journalist, there's a huge difference because but I always considered myself a pacifist until the invasion of Ukraine. And I had opposed every war that I covered. And so when I covered the Americans in Iraq or NATO bombing uh, Serbia and Kosovo or whatever, I, I was against it and I was showing the, the awfulness of it and how bad it was. And yet in Ukraine, because the, the, the Russian aggression is so blatant, so, so enormous, you, you can't possibly support that. And you do see people's acts as heroic in, in a way which I don't remember before seeing, I didn't see American GIs in Iraq as being heroic, for example. And, 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 and what you're talking about opera, in, in your operas, the characters are heroic. Yes. Yes. Um, and then there are, I mean, around the hero, you can be the story. Exactly. You know, a legend. A legend. I mean, uh, another sample, always Verdi, because I love Verdi, uh, Patrio Pressa. 
Patria Oppressa was the chorus in Macbeth, where the Scottish exile uh, are crying for their country. And that is one of the best moments of the opera. Altogether, is an entire country that cried to be away. So these were easier before. This is what I'm saying. Um, just before I finish, I have a few thanks. And my thanks, of course, to uh, Wexford Festival Opera. It's been such a pleasure to work with you all. Uh, friends, supporters, and sponsors of Wexford Festival Opera, and the team that has worked for this, Yvonne Mays, Elaine Sutherland, and Sinead O'Doherty, and also thanks to Wexford County Council and to the Arts Council for their support. Uh, I want to thank in particular my colleague, Dr. Jane Mahoney, who's been the connection between Trinity and Wexford, and thank you, Jane, for all your help. Uh, and I'd like to thank the Trinity Long Room Hub team who set this event up. Uh, particularly Ethan King, who's with us, and Christina Hamilton, who's been running the tech. My thanks to you. Thanks to those of you who asked such very good questions or, or offered comments. Uh, and now it just remains for me to thank very, very warmly, indeed, uh, Rosetta and Lara for such wonderful conversations. Thank you.